please be seated. What an opportunity it is to be uh, alive at this particular time, working in the kingdom of God. Amen. Everyone always talks about they would love to be back in the days of Jesus, but I'm glad that we're living in this day. This is the day that's been prophesied about, and I'm excited about living in this day. And uh, so I'm excited about Brother Sistrunk being here. He and I have been friends for, for many years. It goes back to Bible school days. And uh, some people talk about it, and some people actually go out and do it. And Brother Sistrunk has done it. And so that's why he's here today, and he's going to tell us more about how to do it. And uh, I know there's going to be a lot of questions that come up, and he and I have talked about this. And if you can save your questions until the very end, and there's probably going to be some in-depth questions, and some of them are going to be very oriented to your situation. And so if you will come see us right afterwards, we will schedule a time, uh, a lunch hour or some sort of a time where we can sit down with Brother Sistrunk one-on-one and ask some very detailed questions so he can get through all this material today. Amen. Same thing tomorrow, but uh, we welcome you, Brother Sistrunk. Take your time. Praise the Lord, everybody. Amen. Well, it's good to be here with the faithful. Come out at 9 o'clock, right? <laughs> Amen. Appreciate you coming out today. I, I really w- want to get right to it, and I appreciate Brother Blackshear. We have been friends for years, and it's great to see people that are steady and faithful through the years, right? And uh, it's, it's what it's about, and there's, there's fruit that comes uh, with longevity. There's some things that just can't happen unless you stay, Right? And you stick it out, and you keep being consistent. Uh, it's great to have my wife with me. She usually doesn't travel with me, but uh, she'll be amen in me today. Okay, she's my amen corner, so y'all can be silent, but my wife will be with me. Amen. <laughs> Praise God. Well, let's get to it this morning because, uh, you know, obviously we're not going to cover everything about church planning in two hours, right? And uh, I don't want to offer simplistic answers today because there's nothing simple about church planting, okay? And there's nothing easy about it, and there are no shortcuts. So I'm not offering you an instant church today and uh, mix powder and water, and there you go, okay? Uh, it's, uh, and every situation is different. I've never spoken in Alaska. Alaska, wow, it's just overwhelming the scale of the geography, okay, and you have unique challenges that I've never experienced, okay, and so you'll have to modify what I'm saying to uh, fit uh, Alaska, but I do believe there are some divine principles, right, and uh, so I want to key on those principles, just by way of introduction, and I say this just for pastors, I love pastors, I love fellow ministers, you can't get much by. <laughs> uh, pastors are uh, just some of the greatest people in the world. It takes a lot to pastor a church, build a church. You have to be a politician. You have to be a businessman. You have to be a psychologist. You, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's not easy work. <laughs> and uh, so just, uh, and, and pastors are, are busy, and so you let me just tell you where I'm coming from today when I'm teaching. Uh, we started planting churches. I went to Michigan in 1988 uh, to work for Brother William Nix, and he really infected me with a burden for Detroit, Michigan. Uh, he impacted my life. And uh, God got a hold of me as a young man. I was 21 years old when I went to uh, Detroit, and I, God began to work on me about that area. We started planting churches in 1996. We had gone to South Africa. I always had a strong call for missions, and I thought I was going to be a foreign missionary. So I went to South Africa in 92 to be a furlough replacement over there and realized that God had called me to be a missionary but to Detroit. And didn't really know how that was going to work out, but in 1996, we planted our first church. In the year 2000, we planted our second church. In 2004, we planted a third one. 
in 2005, our fourth church, and in 2007, uh, we took a church that had been started in our section, and the pastor um, uh, left, and so the district asked me to take, they put a lot of money in it and asked me to take it, so we took that church and then and, uh, I had to restart my fourth church. Uh, I turned it over to somebody, and they took it out of the organization, and so we had to start over, and so we started uh, that one in 2008, and then just in November of 2014, we started our seventh church. Those churches today own five buildings, uh, over 100,000 square feet of building. They have an average of attendance of, I got it written down somewhere, uh, 552, and had an Easter attendance of 800 and they have one daughter work and two preaching points from there now that's not near where I thought I'd be <laughs> okay you know we all it, it, has anybody ever succeeded to the point you really hoped you would be okay uh, no I, I don't think any of us have but uh, that's where I'm coming from today and um, all of those churches have different pastors except number seven and so i uh, successfully transition those pastors um, God is the church builder let's never uh, forget that he said except the Lord build the house they that build labor in vain uh, he said upon this rock I will build my church amen brother T.W. Barnes said one time said he he was out hanging a sign said Barnes healing campaign the, the Lord said Hmm, said Barnes Healing Campaign. Said, I've never heard of one. <laughs> I said, see you. Brother Barnes, I think I'll take that sign down. Uh, you know, when you, if you think you're going to get your picture made, say, look at the church I built. You, you better be careful because, you know, it's one thing to fight devils. It's one thing to try to win people. But when you are trying to take God's glory... And God's making sure that you're unsuccessful. You can go to all the seminars in the world and you won't overcome that. So it's God that does it. And it is a miracle. Every time a church starts, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And uh, you, there's that ingredient. I, in all of our seminaring and teaching, I don't want to forget that. It's a miracle. If God doesn't call you there, if God doesn't do work through you it won't happen and so but I do believe that Jesus described the harvest as fishing and farming right he told his disciples I will make you to become fishers of men that that uh, uh, analogy has impressed on me more being in Alaska than than ever before right because uh, Jesus wasn't talking about uh, just sport fishermen. Now, if you took me out fishing, and I've had them explain it to me, and I'm going to British Columbia and try to do salmon fishing for the first time. So I'm going to go out there, you know, and there's people come from the lower 48. They spend thousands of dollars to come up here and catch four or five fish. Right? And so they're getting a benefit from, they just enjoy it. But you can't make a living that way. Anybody that thinks they're going to come up from the lower 48 and catch enough salmon in five days to pay for their trip, they are sorely going to be disappointed, right? But there are fishermen up here that make a living fishing, right? There are people that pay mortgages fishing. There are people that buy cars through fishing. They send their kids to college by fishing. That's what Jesus was talking about. I will make you to become fishers of men. Fishermen have a systematic way, a predictable way of catching fish that they can repeat year after year. They don't lay awake at night thinking, how am I going to catch fish next year? They know how they're going to catch fish next year, okay? They don't worry about it. And I believe Jesus was saying the harvest of men should be that way. We should know how to catch men. We shouldn't lay awake wondering. You know, some people think, you know, somebody comes to the altar at church and they get the Holy Ghost and, and it's, it's a miracle. It is a miracle, but they have no idea how to repeat that. they just like, wow, 
I hope that happens again next week. It's like me catching salmon. You know, wow, look what I got. Boy, I hope I catch another one. Well, that's a bad way to live, and you can't make a living that way, and you can't make a living uh, as a preacher, as a church planner, by not knowing how to catch men. Farming, the same principle. He talked about the sower that went out to sow. He wasn't talking about growing tomatoes on your back porch, hoping you can have fresh bacon tomato sandwich if it all works out right. Talking about commercial farming. So... We need to have a systematic way that we approach winning souls, planning a church. So I want to talk today about uh, establishing church. Uh, and this is, I'm, I'm going to speak on a very narrow subject. This, I'm going to speak to how a church gets established so that you can turn it over to somebody else. A lot of people ask me, Brother Sister, how do you know when a church is established? How do you know when it's ready to turn over? I'm going to tell you today how I judge it. Okay, And, and I'll give you a simple statement here. It's when it has three foundational families plus a pastor. That's how I know a church is ready to turn over to another pastor. It can survive a transition. Three foundational families plus the pastor and his wife. If, past, if there's two plus a pastor, that's not, it's not ready. But there's three plus the pastor and his family who are also uh, foundational families. And so I want to talk to you about establishing a church. If you're a church planner, your primary job is not to grow the church. It's to establish the church. And there is a difference. Uh, it's subtle but real. I mean, no, there's some subtleties to fishing. <laughs> All right? Two guys can be out on the same body of water. They can be 100 meters from each other, and one can be catching fish and the other's not. The difference, it looks the same. They got a boat. They got equipment. But there's subtleties to it, right? And so there's, there's subtle difference between growing a church and establishing a church. Church growth requires uh, emphasis and allocation of resources, read money and people, right? Two resources you have in the church besides the spiritual resources, you have money. Excuse me, money, but you also have time. If you're a bivocational pastor, I'm just telling you right now, you can do the math later, you have 25 hours to give to prayer, study, Bible reading, outreach, preaching, church attendance. You spend more than that, you're going to be robbing from your family. All right? So you've got to know that's a limited resource. Your time is, just, is more limited than your money, and you've got to spend it very wisely. And if your job is establishing a church not growing a church, establishing a church, then you have to allocate the money and the time to the activities that are more likely to establish the church. And so you've got to identify those and know uh, what they are. Church growth requires uh, a greater emphasis and allocation of resources to branding, church programming, marketing, uh, leadership development, long-term strategies, uh, team building, and all the other activities recommended by the leading church growth experts. How many of you are reading all the books by the church growth gurus, I call them? That's good, and it's good for church growth. You can learn a lot of stuff, but they don't help you establish a church, really. Uh, they help you get people in the door. And, uh, but laying the foundation of a church requires an emphasis and allocation of resources to things like spiritual warfare, uh, discipleship, Mentoring, vision casting, doctrine, one-on-one events and activities. And as I say, the differences are subtle. But uh, you have not accomplished your mission if you go somewhere, spend 10 years there, and you leave and there's nothing left. If you constantly feel like you're holding everything together, by the force of your personality and your will, there's a limit to that. Okay? 
and it'll tear you apart. And eventually that church has to have its own foundational families that it uh, that support it. Now, what's a foundational family? Uh, a foundational family is a family that uh, are absolutely apostolic and are as deeply, if not more so, committed to the church as a pastor. They, they have, uh, they're deeply, and if not more so, committed to the church uh, as the pastor. Uh, they have invested heavily in the church with their time, emotional energy, spiritual energy, and finances. I see Brother Kevin Cox back there, Louisiana. I'm from Mississippi. Uh, my great uncle was W.E. Gamblin and started the Jackson Church there with Brother Kraft with 26 of my family members. My maternal uh, uh, grandfather and grandmother, my uh, paternal uh, grandmother, several of my great uncles were all came from Sebastopol, Mississippi to Jackson, Mississippi. And my grandfather pressed Brother Gamlin until he came to Jackson to start a church because there was no church there. And so I come from a foundational family. My grandfather, they, they got a pastor before Brother Gamlin came to Jackson and uh, they showed up one day for church and the door was padlocked and there's a note from the landlord said uh, they hadn't paid the bill and so the pastor was nowhere to be found and my grandfather wrote a check for the remainder of the rent they all went back to a little church outside of Jackson they'd been going to until they could get them another pastor that's a foundational family okay foundational family if you rob a bank commit adultery and it shows up in the paper on Friday they're going to weep and cry, and they're going to be at church on Sunday. They're going to be there early because they're going to say the pastor's probably in jail. So we better be there to open up the church so we can have church. All right? And if you don't leave, they're going to call the district superintendent and tell on you so they can get on with having church. All right? A lot of our preachers come from families like this. Right, And so you have to have those in a church. Our church can't survive on people that are halfway disciples. You've got to have foundational families. And so that's what I do. When I go to start a church, I'm looking, who is my potential for a foundational family? And I spend my time and effort building three foundational families now that doesn't mean you don't have to get 150 people in sometimes to get one foundational family prospect so I don't just work on three people you know I'm trying to get people in but I'm looking for foundational families so you need to ask yourself how many of these types of families have you established from the ground up how many have you found in sin Maybe they came to your church, you taught them a Bible study, saw them, baptized them. They received the Holy Ghost and became foundational families. Now, uh, there are many preachers that will go their entire ministry and never do that. Right? Because maybe they'll take, they come out of Bible school, they work on staff position, they get about 30, they take a church that's established of 200 and and they begin to do executive roles and things, and they never really are involved. That, that's okay. That's not okay for you, though, if you're a church planner. Okay, you got to figure out how to do this because nobody's going to do it for you. Say it. Nobody's going to do it for me. All right? If you're in a larger church, there may be somebody do it for you. There may there are people that are great. There are Barnabases in church that are great, coming alongside young families and mentoring them and teaching them till they fall in love with the Word of God. And, and, and the pastor is preaching. And, and, and larger churches work different. They've got different da dynamics. Okay, I'm not here teaching about how to grow a church of 200 or go to church from 200 to 300. I'm talking about establishing a church in a city. 
and you, it, it boils down to these foundational families. Now, let me, uh, and I know I'm not giving you much practical information right now about how to develop a foundational family, and I will, but I've got to get this in your brain. This is what your job is, okay? This is, uh, this is it, okay? And, and where do these families come from? If you, for example, you're working with someone, you just need to know this. Uh, broken, I call them broken. Maybe they're on drugs or uh, uh, crack addict. I deal with a lot of that in the inner city of Detroit. Uh, uh, meth addicts, uh, their life is just a shambles and they come to us broken. I will tell you, it takes 10 years or more to turn that person into a foundational family. You just, there's just so much work to do and, and the stages you have to go through. You have to, uh, the first, sometimes they're so out of their mind they can't even hear the Word of God. And, and there has to be a healing process. The Spirit of God has to work on them. They need to be in some services with some worship. They, they're just going to come in and out in the beginning. How many knows that, that, that some drug addicts get delivered immediately, but some it takes a long time, right? And so they get better. Babe, you still have that bottle of water? If you do, I'll take it. Um, and so don't get discouraged, but know this. If you've, got, uh, if you've got five families you're working with and they're all hooked on drugs, just know you've got a long way to go. Don't get disappointed, okay? I mean, just know. Don't think you're going to have a strong church in two years. You're not. But it'll happen, okay? Uh, and uh, I was pointing out, I was in service in Ann Arbor. That's the church we started in 1996. I was there uh, with Brother Phil Lemke. I, I drove him there. He preached there. That church is now 20 years old. And I, I pointed out three men in the altar that were from our homeless shelter ministry years ago in 1998. They're there in the altar praying, one of them on the board. But it took a long time. Okay, and it can happen, but it takes a while, okay, because it's the Word. Everybody knows the Word converts the soul. And so it just, uh, a non-believer that is poor, uneducated, they're not on drugs, they've just been living their life. And I say poor and uneducated because it takes a certain ability to absorb information. Okay, if a person can't read, it takes a long time for them to get the Word of God in because it all has to be oral. Okay, a person that can read and study and is used to reading and studying can absorb more of the Word. And, and, and it's the Word that converts the soul. It's the Word that changes people's life. Don't you know it's the incorruptible seed of God that is implanted inside of a person that begins to grow and make a transformation in their life? People can't change without the Word of God. The Word of God is the change agent. Amen. People will not change just because they like you. I have proven people won't change just because you change the brakes on their car. Right? People won't change just because you're... Uh, giving them groceries at the end of every month when they run out of money. People change because they love the Word of God and it's implanted in their heart. Amen. And so, uh, and, and you know, I will tell you, uh, people in this class a lot of times are on government assistance and they have a give me mentality. And that give me mentality won't allow, will hinder them from growing spiritually because they have the same attitude with God. And how many knows a give me mentality is not a biblical mentality, right? And so you've got to work through that. That takes a while, but it can happen. Uh, I say seven to ten years for somebody. Uh, uh, in, in that category. Uh, Non-believer, 
uh, middle to wealthy class and educated, okay? Somebody who uh, has some self-discipline in their life. They're used to going to work every day. They, they uh, finish school, and they know what it is like to get an assignment done on a deadline, and they know that you have to uh, learn certain things to accomplish this job and to get a promotion. They, they're, they're used to taking control of their flesh and making their flesh do what it doesn't like, They'll bring those same principles to Bible study. They'll study. They'll, they'll take notes during your Bible study class. They're going to read the scripture. They're going to follow up on it. They're going to ask you questions because the, these people can go from non-believer to foundational families uh, in as little as five to ten years, right? Uh Here's one I like, youth or Sunday school, okay? A lot of the people that you're working with, maybe they're uh, drug addicts, maybe they're uh, uh, poor, uh, uneducated, but they've got children that are coming. And you get the children in Sunday school. And I'm going to tell you, the most underestimated element of church planting is the children. You take these eight, nine-year-old kids in 10 years, they're 19, they're running your whole department. We, we turned uh, music over. My wife had doing the music in, in inner city Detroit. We turned it over to a 14-year-old girl. And she started doing the music. Amen. My kids started teaching Sunday school. My, 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 my son, my oldest son, was the youth pastor when he was 17 years old. Right? And so you could, these kids in Sunday school, they, they can be foundational family. And I will tell you this. Uh, 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 a hidden secret is that most foundational families are not first-generation Christians. Most foundational families are second-generation or more. Sometimes the parents never become foundational families, but the kids will. Right? Some, how many know some people get so wounded that they spend the rest of their life trying to overcome it? Right? And so if you can take their kids, get them in a Sunday school program and keep them from uh, get them to church uh, twice a week or three times a week, get them to all the youth camps, get them to uh, youth rallies and, and, and get them some good apostolic friends and let them marry another good apostolic young person. Save them from all of that junk. They'll never know what it's like to be on welfare. They'll never know what it's like to be on drugs and alcohol. Amen. So don't neglect uh, your youth, Sunday school kids. Um, and then sometimes we win committed evangelical or Catholic Christians. They've been paying tithes. They've been going to church at the Catholic church or evangelical church down the street. And all of a sudden, you have a conversation with them. Uh, this happened in Ann Arbor. We got our big break when... Presbyterians decided to ordain some gay pastors. We had three Presbyterian board members. One of our saints was on a school board with uh, a gentleman, and uh, they got he got to talking about this. That's that's wrong. They, they can't do that. What what are they thinking? And then that gave uh, Brother Jones an opportunity to say, yeah, let me tell you what else they're wrong about. They're wrong about baptism. They're wrong about the Trinity. <laughs> and you know what? Here, there, there, this door open. Amen. So we won that family, and then his sister and husband had ten kids. Yeah. And uh, they were all, uh, uh, their, their, their father Monty and his sister, their father was a doctor. They're all professional people. And then another uh, friend that was uh, very active in the uh, uh, Presbyterian church, they started coming. And I will tell you, uh, they became foundational families within three to five years. They were foundational families. And uh, uh, the Burmeister's son is uh, the youth pastor. Uh, they're... Chris Martinez, uh, we would have never built the Ann Arbor Church without him. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars he put into that church, never turned in a receipt. Just unbelievable. And then backslider. Sometimes you get a backslider. I will tell you, uh, I was 
youth pastor for Brother Robinette, Brother Charles Robinette. And uh, he had joined the military about 18. And um, Brother Nix, his pastor, called Brother um, Enos in Germany. And um, Brother Enos met, I get emotional telling this story, because, uh, but uh, he met Brother Robinette at the airport. And he, Brother Robinette and his wife got off the plane. He, Brother Enos was there. He uh, shook Brother Robinette's hand. He said, hi. He said, I'm Brother Enos. He said, I hear you're running from God. He said, I'm here to stop you. Amen. Amen. So, uh, transfer. Let's talk about transfer. That happens sometimes. Uh, you can get a good transfer. Let me tell you, it won't, they'll come from more than 30 miles away, though. You hear what I'm saying? Okay. Uh, nobody transferring from the church across town. That's not a foundational family. Uh, if there's a foundational family, they wouldn't have left, right? Uh, and sometimes those trans foundational families have to move because of a job or something. I'm going to tell you, you got to be careful with them because they have done everything they can not to move. And they're a little mad at God because they've had to move. They didn't put in for that. Foundational families don't put in for transfers across the country. They try their dead level best to stay where they're at. And circumstances in their life that's beyond their control has caused them to have to be now at your church. Okay? And sometimes they just never replant. But if you'll deal gently with them and help them, uh, they, they can become. The first five years, they're going to be trying to get back home. Brother Cox will tell you, if somebody from Louisiana comes to Alaska, they're going to be trying to get back home. Okay. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Uh, but sometimes it works out really well. Okay, sometimes God just moves people and they, and they take. So uh, that's, that's, I don't know if that's helping you or not, but that's, that's where. Now, foundational families go through different stages. Uh, the first, and, and this is where, as a church planner, you, uh, I told you the differences are subtle, but you have to become an expert at seeing spiritual growth and discerning spiritual growth talk to a lot of people and they think somebody is here and they're really here and so they wound up wind up with a lot of disappointment all of a sudden the person drops off the face of the earth and they're mystified as to why that happened you you got to quit being surprised by that okay uh, you got. You can't ride the roller coaster as a church planner. You got to stay off that emotional roller coaster. You need to look out at your congregation. Uh, for example, uh, in Plymouth right now, uh, Mother's Day we had 41 in church. Woohoo! That's awesome. But you know what? Me and my wife go home and say, "Wasn't that great?" But we really only had me and her there because that's all that's established. Me and her. If somebody calls me up tomorrow, one of these couples calls us up tomorrow and says, oh, we decided to start going over here to Northridge, we're going to hurt about it a little bit, but we're not going to be surprised by it because we know where they are in their developmental stage, okay? We know that's a risk right now, okay? We're not going around acting like we got a solid, strong church of 41. Aren't we something? And then the next camp meeting, you got nobody and you don't want to tell nobody. You know, you, you come, you know, oh, we had so-and-so, we had this number, and then they'd they avoid you the next time. You know, you don't want to tell because now they're down to six, you know. Well, you had six last year too, right? So, uh, but you, you got to know where people are. And the first stage is pastor love, okay? Uh, they, they love you. They just think you're the greatest pastor in the world. Because you've changed their brakes and you brought them groceries and you know you, you right, 
And so you're carrying them all on your back. <laughs> no wonder they like you, right? <laughs> They're riding on your back, okay? <laughs> and I'm not criticizing that. I've done it. I'll do it some more, okay? I mean, but uh, it's, a, it's one of the stages, okay? And, and you have to exploit this stage to their benefit, okay? Uh, uh, if you're insecure and you just like people to like you, right? You'll just take advantage of people. And you'll let them stay here till they're damaged. You cannot live up to their expectations. You are not the greatest person in the world. Okay? You do not have the answers to all their problems. Right? Okay, and so one day you're not going to return their phone call. You're not going to give them a text back quick enough. You're not going to have the money to fix their transmission now that you, okay, and, and you're going to have to tell them no about something. So you, if they stay here, you're going to lose them. So you have to exploit this to their advantage. If they love you, then say, well, then... I'll be over at your house for a Bible study Wednesday night at 7, okay? Right? Because unless you get the word implanted, they're not going to change. And so if you love me, let me come teach you a Bible study. You exploit that relationship to their benefit. Why weren't you at church on Sunday? I'm disappointed. They don't want to disappoint you. They may not know the value of coming to church, but you know the value of coming to church. You know the value of a Bible study. So you exploit their, that this influence, this shallow influence that you have with them to get them to do something that's going to give them eternal benefit. And so, uh, for example, I don't ever... Uh, call and tell somebody and remind them about the Bible study. If I schedule a Bible study with you two weeks ago and you said yes to it, I will be showing up at your house on time at, and I will be knocking on your door. I'm not going to give you a chance to cancel the Bible study. right? And so I'm just going to be there and then I'm going to make you uh, feel bad about inconveniencing me. You're going to go to hell if you don't get a Bible study. I love you too much to care about whether or not your house is clean or not. Because in the long run, it doesn't matter if your house is clean. It doesn't matter if you're inconvenient. In the long run, it matters if you make it to heaven. Amen. Uh, I, don't schedule, I don't ask people for Bible studies. I schedule people Bible studies. We need to do this Bible study. What's a good time? And I do it while they're at church, usually while they're at the altar. They're on my territory. We need to do a Bible study. What's a good day? All right? And I get them to commit right there. You don't call people after they've left church. They're on their own territory and come begging them to do a Bible study like they're doing you a favor. They came to your church looking for direction, and you know what direction to go. So, um, and, and if they, you've made that relationship, see, you, if you look at this in sales, I'm going to run out of time. Um, you look at this as sales, I mean, a salesman, and, and it's not all this way, it's not, and I don't want to make it a, you know, we're not, there are business principles that translate, this is not, Winning souls is not a business, but a salesman that just wants people to like him and he never tries to close a deal is going to starve to death. Okay, well, as a church planner, you will too. You got to close the deal. Um, then the second stage is church love. Uh, they just love the church. Oh, man, this is my church. They've gone from... Loving you and your wife, having that personal relationship. They now see what you all do. They see the vision you have for the city. 
this is my church. They just love our church. Um, and so you have to not just be satisfied. Don't just be satisfied with creating, you know, go team. How many knows it's not uh, faith in abundant life church or solid rock church that saves people? It's faith in Christ, okay? It's, again, the word converts the soul. And so uh, it's not enough for them just to be excited about the block party that's coming up. It's not just excited for them to be caring for the rose bushes or wanting to, uh, you know, that's good. I'm not, everybody needs to love their church, okay? But I'm just telling you, it's just one of the stages on the way. It's not being established just because people love their church. Don't say, check, they're established. They're not. And if you keep them here, you're going to lose them. How many have lost people that loved the church at one time? Yeah? Okay, that's because they didn't go on to the next stage. Church love, you have to uh, exploit this stage to get them to invest in the church. Strange things begin to happen when a family puts their time and money in the church. Their heart begins to cleave to the church. You've got to teach them tithing. If they're not tithing, they're not there. You, 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 you guys got to learn how to count. You count who t- paid tithes that week. That's how many people you had in church. I don't care if you had 100 people sitting there. If 10 of them paid tithes, you had 10. All right. You had 10. So it looks like this. You give them a job to do that fits with the skill sets they already possess. If you got an electrician, go break something at the church so they can fix it. you got to get them to fix something, whatever skills they possess, get them to There's nothing more healthy than seeing your new converts at the church working. I had a milestone for a family in Plymouth. Uh, I drove up to the church, and the bushes had been trimmed. I'm like, and you know what? Mulch had been put in a flower bed, and you know what? All of the limbs and trash had been put in a bag and hauled off. They didn't leave it there for me to haul off. I said, hey. Something's happening here. They're putting time and energy into the church. And I say, good, because you know what? Uh, they uh, will, their hearts begin to clean. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And their heart will begin to cleave to the church. I, uh, new church, I'm always looking at the offering envelopes. Because I, I see people giving progress they start off 25 bucks a week or whatever and then all of a sudden uh, it goes up a little bit and it's well first of all it, it's random and then it becomes consistent and then all of a sudden it, it tithing begins uh, they start checking that tithing box and it's uh, 252 dollars or whatever and it's you, you can tell they're they're tithing and so you watch that progression now uh, the third stage they go through uh, I call it childish possessiveness. All right, all of a sudden uh, now uh, they they're going to take control of their little area you gave them in the church, and now they're a little critical of everybody else that's not doing what they're doing. I mean, it's like, well, pastor, we need we need to get a cleaning list around here. You know, other people need to get involved in 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 this and. And uh, you know, it's you have you use this time to pull them close and impart your vision and love for people. Because by now they 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 love you. You've taught them the word. They're getting committed to doctrine. They love their church. They're investing in their church. They're a tither now. Uh, they're they're maybe even running a department. And and now they're they're they. They feel like they're part of the leadership team, okay? And so now they're going to they're gonna criticize everybody else. For so now you've got to teach them, hey, wait a minute. 
we're in this thing for people who have problems. If they were perfect people, they wouldn't be coming here. If they had everything they, they needed, they wouldn't be here. And, and so you now they get a higher view of your vision why we're here. That job you gave them, they can't get anybody to help them. And nobody appreciates what they're doing. And they come to you with that frustrated look on their face. You just need to have lunch with them, cast vision. And tell them about Calvary again. This time with a little different emphasis. Take up your cross and follow me. Not only did Christ die for us, but we have to lay down our life. And there's sacrifice involved. There's always sacrifice involved. And this progresses to what I call the lonely stage. I get emotional because it's an excruciating process to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't you remember what it took for you to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? I told God one time, a fellow came in, I don't know, I don't understand God's ways. I just work for him. All right? I, I don't, I wouldn't do it the way he does it a lot of times. I just have to tell you. I don't really understand Bethlehem. Right? I wouldn't have done it that way. Unwed mother, a donkey, a stable. You know, I, I wouldn't have done it that way. I'd have zapped down big hospital in the middle of the desert. They'd have known I was Messiah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I could have fixed that. You know, when I, uh, when I went to Ann Arbor, I said, God, I know how to start a church in Ann Arbor. Just let me clear out about two floors of the U of M hospital. We'll have a church. I don't really understand everything God does, but I do know that he's in control. I, and people go through some things. They're going to go through. Your new converts are going to suffer some things you think God ought to fix for them. I was telling God about a fellow. He came into church, and he was so downcast. He'd only been in church for a few months, and he said, Pastor, I lost my job this week. And I and I'm trying to search for words to say, well, it's going to be okay. And I'm saying all the right words, you know. But inside, I'm like, God, what? How did you let this happen? And we was written a church and it had a little storage area. Uh, it was a hallway, actually, with stuff behind the pulpit. So it had a little door. So I went back behind that thing and I'm like, I said, God, what are you doing? I'm trying to build a church here. I've got a faithful member. He's been paying $600 a month in tithing, and now he loses his job? I, mean, I, was, I was aggravated. <laughs> you may not ever get that way, but I, I the Lord said, calm down. <laughs> he said, if I don't take him through this, you'll never pastor him. I said, okay. Here I go out, get my smiley face on, preach on faith. Yeah? So they go through this lonely stage. You must let them get hurt. You must let them feel the rejection you have faced. You must let them identify with Christ's suffering. You must remove yourself temporarily. Their love for Jesus cannot be tainted by their relationship with you. God is a jealous God. We are not the Savior. He is the Savior. Keep preaching, keep teaching, keep praying. Encouraging. Looks kind of like this. You see the blow coming. You know what's about to happen. 
You must let your understudy fall, scrape their knees. And the Holy Spirit will gently put his hand on your shoulder and whisper, it's okay. I love them. Release them to me and trust. You know, he did die for them. All we did was change a few breaks, take some food over there, stay up a few nights with them. He shed his blood for them. And their allegiance is to him. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Praise God. You got to let the Lord make a saint out of them. And it always involves some suffering. Always. Then adulthood. Just as a father never relinquishes that position in a child's life, you'll always be the spiritual father. But you must allow that relationship to transition to a more equitable relationship. Looks like this. You begin to seek input uh, on decisions. You seek their input. Uh, you begin to leave the entire decision-making process in their hands and let them figure it out and then trust their decisions. And then many of their decisions start becoming the basis of the direction of a department or the future of the church and their investment becomes total. Come on, Pastor, I think we need to buy this piece of property over here. Well, I don't know, brother. You know, you know, you know the finances. I'm not sure it's a stretch. Pastor, I believe we can do it. I believe we can do it. Uh, I'll give $10,000. Now you've got a foundational family. You invested. Amen. Let's just lift our hands. and Jesus, in your name. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done in our lives, God. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done in our life. Thank you for every trial, every test, God. Thank you, Lord, for every crisis of faith that we've had, oh God, that has gone into making us who we are today. God, I pray that you would give us the skill, Lord, to build foundational families, God. Use us, oh God. Lord, I pray that you'll bring them to us, God. Lord, help us identify them. Lord, shine the spotlight for these pastors on families that they should be investing in, God, to build foundational families. Thank you, Jesus.